OpenAI was founded on optimistic ideas that AI could make the world a better place and that a nonprofit organization was the best way to achieve that vision. With news of the CEO's ouster this week, leaving the company on shaky ground, we're going to discuss whether the company's unique structure meant it was doomed to fail, and whether the structure was a result of earnest optimism or more cynical intentions. Later in the episode, we will discuss what the CBC expose on Buffy St. Marie left out in the quest for a clean story, and why some mental health treatments for teens are backfiring, leaving kids worse off than before. I'm Kier. And I'm Liam. And this is Hot Take Think Tank. So, let's get into the open AI story. I do feel like we have to caveat that we're recording on Tuesday, and it'll go up on Friday, and this story has changed every single day since it began. <laughs> but uh, I think we can keep it, we can keep focus on the very interesting things that have happened so far, and, uh, you know, stick to the big ideas more than the minutia of who's meeting with who. Uh, on which afternoons. But uh, I thought first, Kira, I'm curious uh, if you use ChatGPT. I do use it a little bit here and there. Um, I'm not very good at social media. So sometimes I use it to sort of generate ideas of like how to turn, you know, essays into bits of content. Um, But in general, I I feel like I haven't quite figured out what it's useful for for me. Totally. Yeah, I have figured out what it's useful for for me and i do now pony up the 20 bucks a month for the pro version and i use it pretty much every work day i program for a living and it does a ton of programming uh right alongside me uh and you know i I don't have like a formal education in programming so it knows a lot more than i do about a lot of things (laughs) so in that way you and i are sort of part of OpenAI's downfall because uh <laughs> because we kind of contributed to it having to transition from like a resource organization into a consumer platform which maybe uh is not what it was set up for and maybe things have gone very awry <laughs> that's interesting yeah i don't think i necessarily had heard of open ai before chat gpt but chat gpt really did take the world by storm yeah, I think by some measures it's like the fastest growing uh, like consumer platform that the world has ever seen. Uh, wow. I, like I, there's currently 100 million weekly active users. Uh, so it's on the scale of something like a Pokemon Go, bigger. And <laughs> uh, maybe people are using it for more important things than, maybe. Uh, than that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the article in particular we wanted to talk about was um, published by Ben Thompson on Stratechery called OpenAI's Misalignment and Microsoft's Gain. Um, And in it, he sort of goes through uh, a business analysis approach to what has happened, which is, uh, like we said, the CEO being ousted by the board. Uh, And uh, the theory he puts forward basically is that when OpenAI was set up as a nonprofit, uh, that sort of planted some seeds of instability uh, that a for-profit company wouldn't have had and that um that is what led us to where we are today which is just a company in total turmoil lots of uncertainty um and microsoft the biggest investor in OpenAI, seeming to uh be in a decent position to sort of absorb the uh, platform product people from OpenAI and most of the researchers 
uh, sort of turning what was an, uh, a nonprofit company into a division of the biggest for-profit company uh, around. <laughs> mm-hmm. And without like paying for it, <laughs> right? Totally, yeah. Just this quiet absorption. <laughs> right, right. That it that it sort of self-destructed uh, and now is suddenly looking for a home, any home. Uh, and Microsoft is the the clear partner because they 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 had made a huge investment in the company sort of a few years ago, uh, which OpenAI needed so that it could access the GPOs, so that it could do the stuff and the research that they needed to do. But um, yeah. sort of in that agreement, Microsoft got licenses for all of the intellectual property of OpenAI, so it's a very natural home for uh, if everyone needs to quit OpenAI and get hired somewhere else microsoft is sort of the clear the clear home for where they will go next yeah um like if i understand correctly like the idea behind having open ai be a non-profit was that it would be unchained to a profit motive right that right. it would set its own principles and those principles would guide the decisions that it would make um, which sounds good, right? But I think there totally. there is a weakness that I hadn't thought of, which is that, you know, if you are a nonprofit, you're going mm-hmm. to attract a lot less money because people aren't going to be making money through you. And right. so you are going to be reliant on a for-profit company to provide some of the resources and infrastructure that you need Um mm-hmm if you have a product as successful and as suddenly successful as ChatGPT was. Yeah, totally. It's, uh, it's sort of, it's an interesting case where the, like there was this idealism, uh, we can get into later how earnest it was, but this idealism, right. That, uh, you know, they didn't want to create this amazing new technology inside of a company that had to, you know, be responsive to shareholders or whatever, because, uh, especially if there's ever like an artificial general intelligence, which is what they're working on. Uh, the idea is that, that that sort of entity could be so powerful and exert such economic force on the world that um, like being being carefully managed by thoughtful people would be important and, you know, needing to respond to the shareholders to make the most money uh, could lead, lead things astray. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, it it does it does seem like sort of the the company split into a couple of tribes around ChatGPT, where sort of it went from being this uh, low profile uh, in terms of like customer facing things company that did a lot of research, and then suddenly they have like the biggest app of the year, the biggest leap forward in consumer tech in like fifteen years or something like that, <laughs> and. Uh, and so suddenly they have, uh, you know, it came out of Silicon Valley with the CEO, Sam Altman, being very invested in a lot of different startups, uh, sort of treating the company now like a startup, right? How can we grow it? How can we get more people using the software? How can we make money off the software? Um, and this other tribe of Chat G- of OpenAI, sorry, that is still like focused on what the what the founding documents of it said, which is like, you know, our goal is to do this, you know, at a reasonable pace and with safety as the the guiding principle of the whole thing. Right. Because I think like the main distinction of the two tribes within the organization were sort of the accelerationists 
who were more optimistic about like what will come out of AI and how great it will be. Mm-hmm. And then you had the, you know, you could call them the doomers who are much very concerned about like what artificial intelligence could do to us if it's not done properly, you know, and totally. you could probably, you know, I don't want to like caricaturize either <laughs> of them. Right. But that's like a really significant tension within an organization. Totally. Well, and it's, it, there's almost like an irony to it where the whole point of it was that they didn't want this development process to fall into the hands of like a super accelerationist, you know, move fast and break things kind of corporate culture. But there's some, there's so much market demand for, right? ChatGPT is wildly profitable. Every company in the world is like reorganizing, trying to like come up with an AI strategy. Like it's such there's such economic forces pushing this idea and this research and these large language models around that it's almost like uh it's almost irresistible right for the people who are at the wheel like sort of could they you know the the board members tried on friday (laughs) to slam on the brakes and it looks like they will have they will have failed completely like there was never a chance of actually slamming on the brakes with this Mm. sort of thing like there's just too the incentives are too great to spread it far and wide uh the idea that like writing down very good words at the start of it could somehow overcome the tremendous like financial pressures uh that would come later uh Mm. i don't know seems a little uh it's funny in like now it's very easy to be like oh it seems a little naive to think that but um I don't remember reading widely people uh, beforehand worrying about it. I don't know. It seems, yeah, naive in retrospect. But at the time, uh, I don't know. I, I Like, you know, two weeks ago, no one was like, oh, I'm really worried that OpenAI is a nonprofit <laughs> and it's not going to explode. Uh, no, and then it did. absolutely. <laughs> One of the more interesting things and surprising things to me with the Ben Thompson article that you're talking Mm -hmm. about is that he really found it almost concerning that Sam Altman did not own any equity in the company. And it seemed to me that Thompson seems to think that like that is something that really incentivizes CEOs to act in the best interests of the company. Um, And that absent that, like maybe that gave Sam Altman like more leeway to kind of do what he wanted or something like that. And I wasn't sure how to feel about that because I I do feel like people are capable of, you know, pursuing a goal without, you know, owning Mm -hmm. equity in the company. But um, at the same time, like if you're the only company not doing that, Mm. maybe that creates like a dynamic in Silicon Valley that I don't understand very well. Yeah, I think it's sort of funny because that was sort of his criticism of the open AI structure before Friday. Like that was the worry he had. He did not foresee this whole collapse coming. But um, yeah, I remember him talking about the same sort of thing um, to do with Mark Zuckerberg back around 2015, 2016. People were very worried about how he was uh, leading Facebook. Uh, I guess they still are today, aren't they? (laughs) But um, I remember... He had taken solace in the fact that um, Zuckerberg 
has his personal fortune all tied up with Facebook, and then that would mean, you know, of the whole realm of things that Zuckerberg might do, it was at least constrained to things that wouldn't destroy his fortune. Right. Right, and that it's not, there's not like, you know, I don't think he's fully on board with the idea that, you know, like creating shareholder value is the best thing anyone can ever do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I think it's more just like in terms of creating like stable institutions of society, being able to trust people to act in their own best interest makes dealing with them a lot more clear, right? If, yeah. uh, and I think that's sort of come to come to bear on this, not in the way he anticipated, right? But um, right, Microsoft was making was signing huge deals with this entity. Um, it seems without without the caution of like, wait, but this entity. You know, most companies that you do deals with, if you sign papers saying like, you know, we'll give you a billion dollars if you do this for us, you can be pretty darn sure they're going to do that for you. Mm. But when it's a nonprofit, there's, you kind of can't be so sure, right? Mm. That's interesting because nonprofits do, you know, have a lot of transparency. They have to have a lot of transparency around like their finances and that sort of thing. But you think that those mechanisms aren't as strong well it's um mm, i the they're sort of strong for different things like the the mechanisms around nonprofit transparency i think are mostly to like report to the state right that we're not you know a fake nonprofit we are actually doing something we deserve our tax exempt status that sort of thing um, but when it's uh, like the interface between a nonprofit and a business, mm. uh, it's a lot harder to take those guarantees because the nonprofit has explicitly said, uh, we care about something else more than we care about your money. Right. right. So Microsoft trying to be like, well, they'll never back out of this deal. We are giving them this much money. Uh, most most cases, businesses can rely on that right like <laughs> like uh, samsung manufactures the phone screens for iphones they're the two biggest like the two biggest phone manufacturers they're competitors <laughs> but mm-hmm. apple's willing to write the giant check for samsung and samsung's a profit-driven company so apple can rely on them right but if samsung was like a, a non-profit <laughs> then uh they could without any repercussions right no shareholder complaints or anything they could just say uh, we're not going to do that anymore. Mm. Um, so just sort of like the the reliability or stability that uh, that profit motive can provide. Well, uh, I do feel, though, that like Elon Musk is such a counterexample when it comes to Twitter, right? Because <laughs> oh, totally, he yeah. doesn't seem to care if it dies. Like he seems to be a lot more... <laughs> concerned about molding it in its yeah. image than like it being a successful company. So I totally. wonder if there's like a cap on it. Like once you, yes. you basically you lose your mind after your third billion or whatever. And That's then... pretty much you know that that did Ben Thompson did get there with his Mark Zuckerberg analysis because he was saying all these things sort of before the 2016 election happened and he's like, well, mm. I'm glad that Mark's just staying above the fray and he's not getting involved in any of this fake news stuff or whatever. Um, mm. But yeah, it, when you're that rich. Um, sometimes you get into the fray and you're like, oh, maybe this is going to cost, you know, uh, maybe I'll take a 10% hit on my $100 billion uh, estate or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's true. It's uh, only works to a point. And particularly the 
I mean, I guess this whole discussion is about the boringness of uh, various corporate structures. <laughs> uh, it, when Twitter was a public company uh, before Elon Musk bought it, it had like a, a widely understood fiduciary duty to all of its shareholders. So if they mm -hmm. had made calamitous mistakes costing shareholder values, they could have uh, like gone to court for it. Uh, but now that it's uh, sole proprietorship, Elon's the only guy who owns all of the shares. Uh, there's sort of no longer that duty. And and the odd case with Facebook is um, uh, the way it was set up, even though they sold equity shares, they didn't uh, sell voting shares. So the CEO, right. Mark Zuckerberg, still has full control over all the decisions of the company. There's no way for shareholders to uh, sort of overrule him, even if they think he's making a bad economic decision. Right. Yeah. And Elon Musk does come into this story, right? Because he's a he co-founder co alongside uh, Sam Altman of OpenAI. And mm -hmm. Thompson makes uh, mention of the fact that perhaps the nonprofit status was a lot more cynical <laughs> or strategic than a lot of people realize. Can you explain that? Yeah, totally. So the, the idea is that um, both Altman and Musk were... Um, are like big, big people in tech, right? They own a lot of equity in tech companies. Um, Elon Musk, obviously, with uh, Tesla and Sam Altman through various, uh, he was part of Y Combinator, which is like a startup incubator. Uh, so he had small shares in a lot of uh, small, smaller tech firms. Uh, and the idea is that if AI is to be like this future big deal, right? Like being good at AI means you win, being bad at it means you lose sort of... Uh, the companies they invested in needed to find like their edge in the AI wars uh, against Facebook and Google, which their edge is very obvious that they have a ridiculous amount of data, like more than any startup company could ever hope to have. Uh, and so the idea that uh, Thompson puts forward was that the edge that they found was this nonprofit angle, mm -hmm. right? That if they pitched to you know, the PhDs and researchers, the people who are going to make these breakthroughs that uh, like, you know, sure, you could work at Google where they have all the data or you could work here at a nonprofit where we'll pay you lots and you don't have to worry. You know, you can sleep soundly at night <laughs> because, you know, it says in our charter that we will uh, be really good about this and everything's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. Like giving people the opportunity to like work somewhere that might feel more aligned with their values or what their hopes are for mm -hmm. how AI will play out in the world. Like that's, that's really alluring. And I think it's, it's almost disarming as well. Like I remember when I learned yeah. that open AI was a nonprofit, I suddenly felt like softer towards it, right? Like a bit warmer, totally. like, Oh, this is, this is different, you know? And so watching yeah. all this go down lately, um, I don't know. It's like, I hope it's not like the death of experimentation, you know, with yeah. uh, tech and research companies. Like, and one thing you told me that I hmm. like blew my mind was that Sam Altman actually went to the government first, right? And right. proposed yeah. for this company to be publicly owned. Totally. I remember because they've, they've had to do like a few iterations on this nonprofit thing to find a way to like raise the capital that they needed to make the whole thing happen. And I remember, yeah, hearing interviews with him around that time when he was doing the press tour explaining the weird new capped profit thing that he'd set up. Uh, yeah, saying that he'd brought it to like the Department of Defense and the government broadly. Uh, 
saying like we think that this is going to be a huge impact on how the future of the world develops and we think maybe the government would be the best home for this project uh and the government said no thank you <laughs> that's not the sort of thing we do right because that was it was back in 2014 or 2015 that he was going around with that so it was a good eight or nine years out to the sort of breakthrough like chat gpt um Right. It probably sounded like pretty out there at the time. And there also totally. <laughs> seems to be like, you know, we see when Mark Zuckerberg gets, you know, called in uh, for mm. a, what's it called? Like a grand jury. Right. Yeah. Congressional hearing sort of thing. Yeah. A hearing like that, that a lot of the people asking questions have no idea what they're talking about so totally you know i can't help but wonder like if the people the government representatives that altman was meeting with just like mm. really couldn't like understand really what he was talking totally. about yeah the, i've got to think that the the culture altman is used to in in silicon valley where you go around pitching your wild ideas to raise millions of dollars on a moonshot or whatever it completely misaligns with <laughs> how governments are used to like allocating tax money uh totally maybe but reasonably the, so <laughs> well maybe but at the same time like people do have a lot of concerns around you know the amount of power that a company like google or facebook totally. has like in our you know politics so yeah i'm i'm intrigued by that idea and it would have been like a, an audacious choice for the government to make in a lot of ways yeah. to say yes but i just but, well, wonder like, yeah what I, that would have looked like yeah i just used the phrase moonshot for what uh, Silicon Valley likes, but the original moonshot was going to the moon, which right. was a government program, right? <laughs> that spent billions and billions of dollars on, exactly. uh, you know, a, a wild and, uh, I mean, there's no clear financial return on that one. I guess it tied into the Cold War, so it was uh, an easier sell, but uh, it's not like it's never happened before, the government putting billions of dollars into funding like a, a, a scientific breakthrough of one kind or another. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they missed their chance with this one and Microsoft, Microsoft did it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So has this yeah. made you like cynical in general about nonprofits and in the tech industry or, or do you think we'll still continue to see like innovation in that sense? Um, I mean, I like reading the news about it with how important chat GPT has become to like my work day. I was pretty just like i don't know I'm kind of worried like uh like are they are they blowing this right <laughs> like mm -hmm. they've provided like a huge amount of value to to me and uh it's like neck i don't know i i do wonder next time if if it does happen again where a nonprofit company springs up with a really compelling product if that will give me pause about like integrating it into my daily routine thinking like you know will this uh you know, even if I'm willing to pay my monthly subscription, <laughs> will mm -hmm. they suddenly decide, you know, uh, the risk of it is too big and they shouldn't pay monthly subscriptions anymore and uh, yank it offline. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I do want it. It seems like. Like an odd fit. I, I don't have anything against like nonprofits. I think they make a lot of sense in a lot of places, um, even some tech places like Wikipedia, I think makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, as it is but I do I don't know it's it's funny like I feel like a lot of people from the start you know looking at the team behind OpenAI were like this looks like 
a tech startup in every way other than their weird founding charter. And I, yeah, I, I, I think I'd be surprised to see another like clear tech startup wearing nonprofit clothes again. Yeah. It feels like we might be kind of stuck with the, the paradigm or the sort of the funding model that we have for, for startups for a while until someone disrupts it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. Well, Liam, I wanted to ask you if you could briefly describe the Mission Folk Music Festival for our audience. Oh, yeah, sure. The Mission Folk Music Festival happens in Mission, British Columbia, which is a suburb of Vancouver. Uh, A pretty far away suburb. Takes like an hour, an hour and a half in bad traffic to get there. (laughs) But um, it's this big field that uh, once a year for a weekend... Uh, they put up big stages, and they have a big camping area, and there are booths, and there is music. And they get all these acts that you never heard of before from all over the world uh, playing folk music. Uh, instruments you've never seen before. Uh, lots of people are smoking pot everywhere. And I think there's some weird <laughs> backwoods party that I've never been to, but I've heard tell of. <laughs> and it's mostly, <laughs> you see a lot of gray hair, and... I don't know. Like it's like a it's like a suburban 40 years too late Woodstock kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tamer but similar vibes, just as yeah. much tie-dye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our parents took us there like basically mm-hmm. every year when we were kids and I continue to go sometimes uh, with our mom. Um, and I saw Buffy St. Marie there, uh, in 2012. I did. Yeah. And, um, she was very well received. People were so excited. Um, yeah, that's a pretty, uh, a pretty big name for the Mission Folk Festival. It is. I think they'll often have like one headliner who you might have heard of, but, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. She's a big get. She's a big get. Like, yeah, Buffy St. Marie, at least in Canada, is like an absolute mm-hmm. icon. Um, most people know who she is, and she's just won like countless awards and honors. Um, oh, no. And I, the one little story I have from that weekend was she was in a workshop, you know, so there were four musicians sitting on the stage, um, mm-hmm. and it was like an indigenous themed panel. And everyone was indigenous except this one white guy who was Australian and he had been taught uh, Aboriginal music. And so mm-hmm. um, he was there talking about it. And um, I noticed Buffy just giving this guy so much stink eye. <laughs> huh. Interesting. And, like, rolling her eyes when he was talking and like, I don't know. I feel like I didn't make it up. It really felt like she was very, like, unimpressed with him being there. Very much, it sounded like very much like, whoa, you're white. Yeah. This isn't your place. This isn't. That yeah, sort of thing? Yeah, that's what it felt like, for sure. Mm. And I could see it from the audience, so she wasn't that subtle <laughs> about it. So that memory really came back, you know, because over, about a month ago, uh, the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, came out with sort of this documentary slash expose Mm -hmm. about Buffy St. Marie's ancestry. Um, and when it all sort of unfurled, I, I kind of looked back on that moment and laughed a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. because Buffy has always claimed that she is indigenous, that she was adopted Mm -hmm. as a small child and, um, 
raised by a white family in Massachusetts. Right. And her story has shifted in various ways over the years. Um, sometimes she's said she's adopted. Sometimes she's implied she's the child of an affair. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes she says she knows her birth mother. Sometimes she says she doesn't. Sometimes she says her birth mother died after giving birth. Um, in other ones, her mother just couldn't take care of her, gave her up for adoption. Mm -hmm. um, she's also said she's Algonquin. She said she's Mi'kmaq. She said she's Cree. All of these First Nations are in different places. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it wasn't adding up for um, the reporters and researchers that were mm. involved with the documentary. So <laughs> to spoil yeah. it, um, they basically did manage to find her birth certificate. She claimed she did not have a birth certificate. Mm. Um, and it shows her to be the daughter of the parents who raised her, both of whom are white and right. Italian-American. And um, it's pretty convincing, right? Like even, yeah. you know, the clerk who shows the birth certificate shows how like these were put in order in the book, right? So hmm. it's like the idea that she was adopted, you know, at a later date, like the paperwork would have been in a different spot in the binder. Um, mm. It's just there's really no like explanation for the birth certificate being specifically right. where it is, except yeah. that she and was born there. It's the sort of scrutiny you'd sort of expect of the CBC. Like they're not uh, a tabloid or anything who are going to run with like unfounded rumors. It's the sort of thing I don't think they'd broadcast unless they were uh, quite convinced that they yes. were reporting the truth. I agree. Like if they got it wrong, it would be like such a huge scandal that like totally. they, they had to be very sure before they put it out. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, so I really kind of wanted to talk about like the response to the documentary, what was sort of glossed over or left out of the documentary, mm -hmm. um, and sort of more of the context for it, especially for people who aren't in Canada. Um, yeah. so yeah, so this has kicked up like a lot of controversy and I think that there's like a very, very mixed response. Um, mm. among the general public and among indigenous people, which some people might find surprising, right? It's like this woman has claimed she's indigenous. It looks like she's not, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> that that seems clear cut in the documentary. But act, in reality, like there are a lot of indigenous people coming to her defense. Um, mm -hmm. And part of the reason for that is that uh, Buffy, like in her early 20s, was uh, adopted into a Piapot First Nation family in Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess under uh, that is a Cree First Nation and sort of under their adoption and kinship protocols, she is a member of that family. She's a member of that community and yeah. they consider her to be indigenous. Um and I even listened to a podcast, a CBC podcast that had two mm -hmm. indigenous artists discussing it. And one of them believes that that makes her indigenous. The fact that she was adopted into the family of an indigenous right. nation. Um, the other person says, no, the adoption means she's a member of that family, but that does not make her indigenous. Mm. And they both felt very, very strongly about their positions. Right. Um, mm -hmm. 
And that's like part of the conversation around like indigeneity in Canada, right? Um, I've heard many times that like, it's not enough to find, you know, one ancestor in a chart. You know, being an indigenous is a lot to do with reciprocity. It's a lot to do with belonging mm. and like being claimed, right? Like if you right. are a tiny bit indigenous, but you've never, ever, ever been to your territory, you've never met anyone who lives there, you know, mm. then, you know, are are you really a community member? Can you really claim that community as being yours, you know? Right. And so that's what's so, right. so is, confusing is, about this. Totally. Is Buffy somehow more indigenous than some people who, uh, you know, our traditional Western ideas would be like, oh, that person is, you know, the son or daughter of two indigenous people. So they are indigenous. <laughs> mm -hmm. But if they, you know, live in the big city or, uh, you know, don't don't stay in touch with their family or anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's a uh, it's an interesting sort of uh, perspective shift. Yeah, yeah, because I, I do think be, that adoption really does mean a lot to some people, right? Like that mm -hmm. adoption means like, yes, she is indigenous. Um, so, yeah, I think it's like what really was left out of the CBC documentary was like the complexity of the understandings of indigenous identity and citizenship. Right. Um, and so they really, you know, they didn't interview the Piapot family. Um, they did show a letter that was written by them, um, hmm. but they really sort of skated over that. And to an extent I get that, right? Because their point was, you know, if we're talking about blood and genetics and family trees, yeah. Buffy St. Marie is not indigenous, but the adoption was really just sort of very, very underplayed in the documentary mm. because that was their focus, right? Um, yeah. And this kicked up a lot for a lot of people, right? You'd think the birth certificate is like the smoking gun, mm. but you <laughs> have had a lot of indigenous people coming out of the woodwork, adoptees who said, my birth certificate was falsified. My right. birth certificate was fabricated. I, you know, my parents were taken off of my birth certificate and my adopted parents were putting on, put on it. And I only realized yeah. that decades later. Um, and then you have like, <laughs> I may be getting into the nitty gritty here, but you also <laughs> have like people have been stripped of their status, right? Like the Indian yeah. Act um, from 1876, you know, if a woman married a non-Indigenous man, she lost her status any person who obtained a university degree lost their status. Anyone hmm. who served in the armed forces lost their status. Wow. Um, and some of these people have now had it reinstated. But yeah, so there's a... And you even have nations that the government doesn't recognize. And so right. if you're a member of one of those nations, like you aren't indigenous according to the government, right? Hmm. So it is like a lot more complex than the documentary suggested and um yeah that's kind of why it kicked up so much controversy for people yeah yeah it's it's an interesting i feel like it gets at a lot of the sort of things we we like to talk about about um uh i mean i guess around identity uh which i think uh, yeah it's interesting i feel like we both have a bit of an aversion to like identity politics uh in the way it's like currently I don't know, taking over the, the left wing of uh, the po political spectrum. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. This does strike me as a, a more interesting 
uh, example where um, identity uh, it doesn't feel like it's being like falsely elevated as uh, as a you know something that isn't actually that important that people are blowing out of proportion for political reasons. Uh, this does seem like a like a genuinely uh, I don't know sort of important important distinction, uh, especially if you want to like let people. Uh, you know, there's just so much, so much history to it of, uh, of colonial powers, like, uh, overruling, uh, how things, uh, how people want to do, how people want to define this sort of thing. So there, it's like exactly. a, a, a murky, very murky waters for, uh, right. the government to be like, Ah, this person is not indigenous, and we figured that out, and case closed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you know, it's um, if if we are working towards, like, indigenous sovereignty, does that not mean that we have to respect adoption protocols, like, whether or not we agree with them, right? Um, hmm. Uh, yeah, so one of the articles I found really interesting on all this was called What's the Point of Pretendian in- Investigations by uh, mm-hmm. Michelle Saika on The Walrus. And I found some parts that I agreed with and some parts I didn't. Um, mm-hmm. I think that like she really laid out um, the complexity of indigenous citizenship and how much that was glossed over by the CBC. But I did disagree with some of her ideas on the role of a journalist because hmm. she did sort of talk about like the turmoil and the the harm that is being done with this story. And and yeah. I do think that that pain is real because Buffy, I think whether or not people are mad at her right now, almost everyone agrees that she was a total trailblazer, right? Like she was like the first indigenous woman to win a Grammy. Um, She opened so many doors. Apparently she's largely responsible for the Junos at Canadian music award, Mm. having Mm -hmm. indigenous category. Like there's like tangible effects, tangible opportunities for indigenous people now that are Mm -hmm. a result of her activism. And so that's what's you know kind of so heartbreaking for people but i think like for me like i i do feel really compelled towards the truth and i think that like journalism Mm -hmm. is often upsetting you know like when when investigations happen like they can be really devastating for people and i don't think that that's a reason for them not to happen yeah no i'm 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 with you on that that this article in particular it did kept keep i don't know placing at the feet of the journalists what i felt like was rightly uh i don't know ire that you could feel towards buffy saint marie just Mm -hmm. like um like that by lying about this stuff she was like setting uh an investigation like this on on its path to happen eventually Mm -hmm. right like that it's it's not uh not the journalist's fault for discovering these things, but mm, if she had been truthful, there wouldn't have been anything to discover. And exactly, none of this right? would be happening, right? Like it's it's a weird. It's like the don't shoot the messenger, right? And it's like yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think another layer to this that I wanted to point out, like it it does come into like. Um, 
cancellation and, and witch hunts and this sort mm. of thing too, because um, there are some like really um, intense advocates of, you know, unmasking pretendians out there. Right. Um, one of whom is interviewed in the documentary series. Mm. Um, Jacqueline Ke- uh, Keeler is uh, a, a controversial figure. Um, yeah. You know, she released um, a list in 2021 of uh, alleged pretendians that had about 200 public figures mm-hmm. on it. And uh, there were a number of people who subsequently provided paperwork (laughs) proving that she got it wrong you know um and i don't know if uh this person was on the list but there's a cree metis artist isque and she was falsely accused of being a pretendian and you can imagine like the effect that that would have on your career right like you would very easily get like disinvited from everything shunned just like completely shut out Um, and like, thankfully in her case, um, basically like her status card had expired as, you know, as they can. (laughs) And so she had to like reapply so that she could provide it as evidence to the public that she Mm -hmm. is indeed, um, Red River Métis. But that's like, that's some of the danger. Like you're, you you might think like, why would any indigenous person be against this type of unmasking? And the answer is that like, people are tired of so much scrutiny, right? The scrutiny that totally. like they live with every day. And so to have like white CBC journalists, <laughs> like doing this type of work is going to be offensive to some people, especially if like innocent people get caught up in the crossfire. Totally. It, it weirdly, uh, in my mind, there's like parallels between, uh, this, not, not everything is parallel here, but, uh, between, uh sort of the idea that the like the turf movement or whatever the trans exclusionary feminists uh how that movement is so damaging to cis women as well in that uh you kind of can't tell by looking at someone whether they're trans or not and Mm -hmm. suddenly uh cis women also will be like subjected to these like weird tests that like they shouldn't like uh, uh, for many reasons uh people shouldn't have to like prove their biological sex but uh that yeah. it's uh that yeah when when you start when you when you bring in this uh i don't know this question of like you know you have to be you know you can't just look this way you have to be this way in some yeah deeper deeper way you have to prove it right yeah. where is your card that shows you're you know woman at birth or indigenous <laughs> at birth uh yeah absolutely uh, but i but they they feel obviously very different in in that uh trans women aren't lying about being women to get Mm -hmm. benefits uh Mm -hmm. whereas i guess that's the accusation against people saying that they're indigenous uh falsely that they might be trying to uh benefit somehow yeah, well, um, yeah, Saika kind of gets to this at the end of um, her article where she kind of talks about how, like, you know, kind of picking off one pretendian at a time is not, like, getting at the crux of the issue because, you know, yeah. basically over the last, I'm not sure, maybe decade, um, 
there are like more and more opportunities for indigenous people. There's more, you know, jobs and grants and awards and honors that are particularly for indigenous people. Um, And so that has largely been based solely on self-identification. Like you check the box and that's that, Um, you know, that's as far as the (laughs) uh, investigation has gone. and that's caused a lot of really embarrassing um, situations for various organizations as people mm-hmm. have been revealed to have no indigenous ancestry. Um, right, but, but they checked the boxes because it's in their own self-interest, right? As long as nothing get, they don't get caught out in it, then uh, you check that box and you improve your odds or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think there's like, you know, some people might be like, um, innocently mistaken, uh, because stories yep. have like been passed down to them all the way to people who are like, Oh, like I, you know, I'm going to get in totally. on this, like very tiny, uh, <laughs> gold rush, I suppose. Um, yeah. so that, yeah, like part of what needs to change is, is the incentives and like what the standards are, because that's yeah. one way that we can discourage people from partaking in this type of behavior in the first place. Totally. Yeah, it yeah. does feel like there's a, a small connection to the open AI story from this from this part where it's like you, you know, open AI writes their founding document being like, we're going to only do safe AI stuff. Uh, but the incentives end up, you know, as they often do, uh, messing with that plan to do good. And right. It's the same with having that checkbox on your form. Right. You're trying to do right by indigenous communities and. Uh, unfortunately, putting a checkbox bo- check on your form uh, might not actually achieve that end. Even if it's done with, you know, pure heart, <laughs> uh, yes. you might accidentally just be providing a bunch of weird incentives for uh, non-Indigenous people to uh, lie and confuse everything. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like, yeah, I don't know, something about like the, the tangible material uh, incentives, uh, I think often... Uh, outweigh whatever uh, good intentions you might might have written down yeah absolutely yeah and you know I think um, Buffy's 82 years old now um, and that's part of why some people are like why didn't you just leave her alone Um, but you know I think Hmm. I think she will always have admirers you know I think she's just now she's going to be a controversial figure there are some people that are going to want nothing to do with her anymore but I think her impact has been so large that um she's gonna she's gonna continue to have true believers on her side I think yeah yeah that seems very likely yeah yeah so uh Next up, we wanted to discuss an article from The Atlantic written by Olga Kazan titled, These Teens Got Therapy, Then They Got Worse. Uh, The story starts by outlining a recently published study out of Australia where they assigned a thousand Australian middle schoolers into either a treatment group where they taught a mental health class based on dialectical behavioral therapy uh, or a control group. And the results were not what they had hoped. The kids in the DBT group fared worse than their peers. Uh, And then the article gets into the broader idea that, in general, these broad-based approaches to help teen mental health, they seem to fail. Uh, Similar to how the D.A.R.E. program failed to keep teenagers from doing drugs. Uh, And that that, uh, lack of success is a pretty serious problem given the teenage mental health crisis. 
so Kier, what did you find interesting about this article? Well, it really made me think of uh, Jesse Singel's book called The Quick Fix, Why Fad mm. Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. Um, and it's really worth reading. Um, but mm-hmm. one of the things that really got at is that like institutions are so often looking for like cheap cure-alls, right? Um, right. You know, and you can imagine like the appeal if it's like, oh, you know, instead of individual students getting one-on-one support from, you know, a highly trained professional, if instead right. we can just have this assembly or, or classroom, uh, you know, treat 30 kids at once. Um, and maybe the person presenting doesn't even have to be a therapist, right? right. We can yeah. pay them we'll less. Just, we'll provide, provide the PowerPoint and they just click through it kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Just like a, mm. yeah, a well-being uh, type of thing. Like that's, that's going to be really appealing even if it doesn't work and it like does not really help people the way you know and i think it is also sort of a cautionary tale you know this article is um that like just because something works you know for people with these mental health issues in individual counseling sessions you can't necessarily take that information you know give it to healthy kids in a you know a group setting and expect it to do the same thing Oh, totally. Yeah, that seems like a. I don't know. I feel like the, the it's framed as if the the researchers were like surprised or disappointed by this result, and I have to wonder how much that is true because it. I don't know. It feels sort of like a long shot to me, the idea that, right, DBT is a is a well studied, uh, and effective therapy uh, in. The the form it was made to be given in right, which mm-hmm. I think is a combination of group therapy and one on one therapy, and for mm-hmm. very specific uh, issues that people might be facing. Uh, so the idea that like oh we'll just take the same ideas and we'll just uh, teach them to everyone, uh, I don't know. It it would be great if it had worked, but it it doesn't strike me as super surprising <laughs> that uh, that it didn't. Yeah. And I wanted to say, like, there's a sentence in the article that says, in case it's not clear, although it's disappointing that the therapy program didn't work, it's commendable that Harvey and her colleagues analyzed it objectively and published the negative results. And I want to draw attention Mm -hmm. to that. Um, There's something called, like, the file drawer problem or publication bias, which is essentially that results not supporting the hypothesis of researchers often go no further than the researchers filed drawers and remain unpublished right so totally if they find the finding they want they submit it for publication if they find a finding they don't want we don't hear about it right like it doesn't yeah. make it into the journals so totally. I, that's I would guess, one really cool thing about this totally i i think usually if they're doing like a thousand kid uh study that's right. probably gonna get published either way <laughs> it would be hard but, to uh, make that disappear totally but uh no, yeah. it's totally true. I think like the the early, I imagine that this was a study that came out after, uh, like earlier smaller scale scale studies uh, showed some promise that uh, you know got them the funding that they needed to do the larger scale study. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, I th- I thought it was quite an interesting, quite an interesting article, uh, and I d- I did find it interesting the idea that uh, it not only didn't help but 
seemed to make things worse. <laughs> right. Let's talk about I, that. <laughs> yeah. So it was, uh, you know, they measured sort of how, how the kids were doing uh, on several axes. Uh, and I think gen- I think they showed all of them to either have stayed the same or gotten worse uh, sort of immediately after treatment. And then I think they did like a three-month follow-up where uh, pretty much the, everything had gone back to baseline other than the quality of relationship with parents, which yeah. had stayed lower uh, even three months later. And I, I did end up reading the abstract of the paper, and it was very clear, that, like, uh, don't try this. It didn't work. <laughs> like, there, there wasn't, like, uh, uh, you know, a lot of studies end with, like, you know, we didn't quite get it this time, but we, you know, we hope that more research happens in this area. This one seemed more right. like, uh, you know, we might have done some harm uh, back to the drawing board. Uh, sort of result. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the author kind of ties in like other sort of uh, challenges that we've uh, found in, in supporting teenagers, right. That like, Hmm. I mean, I remember, I think I was like at the tail end of the dare use the drug abuse resistance education, you know, and there was this giant biker guy, you know, who just Mm. like screamed about heroin uh, that he'd been a heroin addict and that like weed is a gateway drug. Um, right. Everyone who smokes weed will go on to, you know, basically end up in the gutter um, injecting heroin. And at the time I was like horrified. Uh, we were all horrified mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but think like there are people in this audience who have already smoked weed. Right. And what right. message are <laughs> they getting from this? Like, Oh, I'm already doomed. Like, Right. You know, and also either just, I'm already doomed or this guy's lying to us. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. And if he's lying about this, what else is he lying about? Maybe drugs right. aren't bad at all. Right. Like, yeah, totally. It just, it was so over the top and such a like scaremongering approach to it that like mm-hmm. I just was like, I bet this has like unintended consequences. Like, totally. I don't think this is like a neutral <laughs> experience people are having. <laughs> well, and that's what I had to think with the like, giving dbt style advice to a general audience is that it's advice tailored to people who are like enduring pretty serious like distress and uh serious problems and you have to wonder about the kids in that class who hadn't been worried about their mental health at the start of it um being told all of these uh i don't know being given tools to deal with a problem that they weren't facing you know, all of a sudden, are they going to be on higher alert looking for things that they can use the tools on? You know what I mean? And, exactly. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of mental health can come down to uh, sort of how you contextualize your own thoughts, right? Like someone who is severely depressed will will take their sad thoughts more, th- more seriously, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and so leading a bunch of people to uh, whose mental health is fine, asking them to take their mental health more seriously... Uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, uh, maybe they'd be doing better if they're just, you know, they were doing fine as they were and just not like turning, turning that magnifying glass towards their mental health, uh, might've been for the best. <laughs> I agree with this so much. Like I, I am very skeptical of the idea that like absolutely everyone should be in therapy, that anyone who is not in therapy is a garbage totally. person. Um, and yeah, that there's no other ways that people can like tend to their mental health or learn communication skills or whatever it is. Right. I don't believe that, you know, and I do think that there are specific cases where therapy could make things worse for people. Right. Like 
if you're like you know ruminating over like your every interaction and like you know Mm. you're like oh how do I make sure that I never fight with this person again oh how do I have to like change my personality and you're just like you're just Mm. spinning and spinning and spinning you know maybe instead of therapy (laughs) you should go play basketball (laughs) or take up woodworking or like do literally anything else (laughs) i think some therapists would give that same advice and other therapists uh especially somewhere like here where there's no qualifications required to be a therapist (laughs) might just be happy to wallow with you and you know uh uh, act as though this like endless self-reflection is somehow going to yield better mental health some yeah, therapists exactly. are just as tied up in that kind of thinking uh, as their patients. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think uh, I'd say I'd pers- I've personally experienced both <laughs> therapists yeah. who are like, Ooh, let's talk about all the terrible things forever. And then therapists totally. who are like, you know what? You seem fine. I think you should go hang out with your friends. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> Me too, actually. <laughs> yeah, I did. I thought there was one very clear policy change, which I would love to see. That seems like it would help which is uh, it says that in many states, adolescents can't access any mental health care without parental consent. Right. Yes. And that seems like a very clear thing that could be changed to make a big improvement because uh, you have to think that there's overlap between the kids who don't feel comfortable talking with their parents and who need mental health support. (laughs) Yes. And that seems uh, likely. (laughs) And being able to find a way for those kids to access support uh and and hopefully from trained professionals and again it's like in in the context i don't know i've i've read a fair number of books about how to do therapy just for my own to help myself i guess (laughs) and uh a a lot of it uh something i've come uh, well i'll go on a whole rant about better help sometime (laughs) but i think that a big a big part of the what can make therapy work is that uh the therapist has like a uh, a toehold from the get-go because the the patient has come to therapy hmm. and so that means right, something isn't working it, right exactly right just mm-hmm. that it means like you know if nothing needed to change you wouldn't be here right mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think that can can be a can be a big thing and uh yeah but you, you don't have that when you're just lecturing a, a classroom full of teenagers uh, but you would have that if, if a teen could, you know, talk to a, an administrator and be like, I need, I need some help. Uh, I, th- yeah. I think that could. I totally agree. And that people. seemed to be like another hypothesis sort of in the article, right? Is that like mm-hmm. teens don't like being told what to do, right? Like totally. <laughs> maybe that, that could be one of the reasons why this doesn't work is because they don't want to be told what to do. So, you know, yeah. if they're, you're going to be in a very different place if someone like asks yeah. for help, chooses help, you know, and totally. I did actually look it up and it turns out in Canada, we have a better situation um, where, That's good. <laughs> um, yeah, there's only two provinces that have like an age of consent around like mental mm. health care. I think in healthcare in general, uh, Quebec, it's 14, New Brunswick, it's 16, And from my understanding, all the other provinces and territories, it's like a case by case basis. And if the therapist feels Mm -hmm. as though the youth 
has, you know, the mental capacity to make the choice for themselves, then they're able to access it. And I think that's really that's great and maybe totally. a model that could be replicated in the States. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we could dream. <laughs> we can always dream. Yes. Yeah. Um, I had one other uh, mm-hmm. thought on this, which is just, um, you know, recently, like, it seems that both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism are being kicked mm. up, you know, and I heard on the national uh, CBC news program that, um, you know, there's going to be attempts in schools to like educate about these types of bullying and mm. harassment and counter them. And it made me a little worried. <laughs> you know, I don't like Islamophobia or anti-Semitism, but basically <laughs> a lot of anti-bullying programs seem to backfire, right? Because totally. they bring attention to yeah. stereotypes and they remind people. <laughs> they just know, remind kids that they can be bullies, I think exactly. is a big part of it, right? Like it might not cross your mind until like, you go I've to the lecture. I've never thought of making fun of so-and-so yeah. in this way before, totally. but now that you mention it... <laughs> Yeah, totally. Well, and it's yeah. yeah, I'd I'd be curious like the the you know, Jewish or Muslim kids in those classes uh would they uh would they vote to have those classes or not? Right. How do I they don't feel know. about I it? I don't know, yeah. but I I don't it doesn't seem like a slam dunk to me that they'd be like, "Yes, I really want to be singled out as a bullying target and then told not to get bullied about it." <laughs> <laughs> that seems uh, uh a bit a bit more complicated. Again, yeah. I feel like it almost does tie into the the same idea of like uh, you can you can have clear intentions and do your best to, uh, you know, be you know be clear about your plan and implement your plan. But if the incentives go the other way, or you haven't thought of certain edge cases or whatever, uh, you know, the your, your well laid plans can go uh, very awry. <laughs> and it, yeah, sort of, it doesn't absolutely. sort of matter. It sort of doesn't matter just how nice or good your plans were uh, if if the incentives or or something you haven't considered uh, don't align with with your nice good plan to help yeah. teenagers with their mental health. Exactly. Yeah. Outcomes really matter. <laughs> and they're totally. not always what we expect. So we need to make sure yeah. to circle back and see how things totally. are going. <laughs> well, and, and do studies like the one that this article is about. It's I don't know. I always think it's funny when there's an article that's like um, reporting a a study that didn't go the way the researchers hoped it would, as if that's like a, a huge setback and not like how the process of research goes. Right. I don't know. In, in some ways, it's like, yeah, cool. I bet they'll come back with another plan that they do next year and use the lessons they learned here. And uh, the, the march of progress will continue. Yeah, maybe it's a, a good thing that looks like a bad thing. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, so the essay I wrote last week was, uh, more personal than a lot of the stuff I write. Um, and it was called On the Arrival of Silver Hair. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And basically it was about how, like, I've spent a lot of my life feeling a mismatch between how I feel and how old I am. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Um, when I was really small in preschool, I thought like my preschool teachers who had like crow's feet around their eyes and smile mm-hmm. lines around their mouths were just so beautiful. And I like scrunched my face up trying to get those lines because I just thought that like it was evidence that you were you'd been so happy so often right (laughs) um and yeah this and I also like really wanted to be old I wanted to be taken seriously even when I was like five years old you know (laughs) I was like very upset that I didn't get homework in kindergarten because I was ready to be a big kid um (laughs) And then like into my 20s when I, you know, started experiencing um, health problems, like I looked super young and I felt positively ancient uh, Mm. inside Mm -hmm. and, you know, as as prone to injury as someone in their 80s. Um, Yeah. So basically now that I'm like in my early 30s and I see these silver hairs coming in, I just feel like finally maybe there's like a match between how old I feel and how old I look and it feels very nice (laughs) yeah yeah it's a a beautiful piece you've written here I I really uh yeah I found it found it very touching and Mm. uh yeah I feel like it's it's not something we want to subject to the normal sort of hot take think tank uh arguments about <laughs> uh wordings or, or that sort of thing uh I'd, I'd say anyone listening if you haven't read it you should uh take some time out of your day and, and read it i think it'll uh i think it's w- well worth the read thanks liam yeah um it's funny like because i have this Substack and i publish something every week um mm-hmm. i've really become aware of the idea of audience capture right that like yeah you do feel like really good when you get lots of likes and comments and Mm -hmm. messages and oh yeah this one really hit you know and it's tempting to like uh uh, chase that right um but there's always the the risk right that you're going to like kind of narrow, narrow, narrow down what you're writing about. And perhaps you're even going to try and be provocative and controversial and really, you know, (laughs) kind of pick at people because that is the type of content that people respond more to, right? Like Mm. if someone just has like a ah, calm, like feeling, they probably won't say anything to you about it. So yeah, I kind of took a chance with this. I was like, I knew the response would be a little quieter, but Hmm. you know, I did get some like really touching responses from people who felt um, very moved by it. So yeah, I'm glad I put it out there. Totally. No, I think that's, (laughs) I think that's a very, a very wise thing to do sort of not, not let yourself get too caught up in the, the numbers game of trying to get, you know, as many shares on Twitter or whatever that you possibly can with each article. <laughs> Cause, uh, yeah, I don't think you want to get sort of wrapped up in that. Uh, yeah. That sort of race to make the most provocative content you can. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cause that's just, I don't think that's the kind of person you are. You're not sort of, uh, uh, you're not trying to go famous at any any costs or anything like that. <laughs> I'd really rather not. It seems awful. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. It does. I mean, <laughs> it does feel like the whole. Uh, 
I don't know. It, it makes me think again about just how, how incentives can affect uh, things, right? And, and that you do have this incentive to uh, write less beautiful things than this and write instead things that make people angry or make people click. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I think it's admirable sort of that you can uh, can set those those incentives aside and do what you, uh, you know, what's more meaningful to you. Yeah, it's, I, I hope it's, it's something I can continue to do for sure. I don't want to don't want to yeah. toot my ho- horn too much, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it feels really good, and it's something I want to encourage for other people too, right? It's like if you're putting your work out into the world, like it has to work for you. It has to be meaningful on on some level for it to be like sustainable effort, totally. right? So I think yeah, trying to find that balance where you're like you know, you're, you are thinking about your readership without letting them like direct you. And, and I also think like Mm -hmm. the more honest you get, the weirder and truer to yourself you can get, like it might take longer to find your people, but the people who do find you Hmm. like you, they like what you're doing already. Right. So you don't have to strive to like fit into something else to please those people. Totally. Yeah. And, and I think there's got to be something to be said for for making content that um, you feel good about, regardless of how well it performs uh, when measured by metrics, you know, sort of writing, writing something that you think is is a worthwhile thing to write, regardless of how how it does uh, so that you're not constantly stuck on the trap of, of uh, you know, writing something and then feeling bad about it if it didn't uh, get enough views or whatever. It's uh Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are there there are other reasons to to write things, and I I'd say that probably most great writing wasn't done uh, in the name of collecting views or email addresses. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, I think it's usually uh, yeah, usually the things that are written for for personal reasons that end up being uh, the most worth uh, worthwhile to read. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think, yeah, the the literary landscape would be much impoverished if the motivating factor for everyone was, you know, the most, <laughs> the <laughs> most engagement. And um, yeah, having your own reasons uh, for doing what you do uh, provides a, a great foundation. Totally. <laughs> well, should we wrap up with Liam's quiz? Let's do it. I'm ready. All right. So um, uh, this one inspired by the teen mental health article we discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me th- it made me realize I don't actually know the uh, how common mental health problems are. Mm. Uh, so I wanted to look it up. And uh, the World Health Organization is actually the source for this one. Um, and the question is, uh, as of 2019, so pre-pandemic, they don't have good numbers uh, since then, uh, published yet at least. Uh, as of 2019, what percentage of the population of the world were living with a mental health condition? Oh my gosh. Uh, wow. And it is, uh, you know, it's the World Health Organization, so they had to come up with like very specific definitions of everything. And uh, mm-hmm. it's also an estimate because they didn't like uh, administer uh, like diagnostic diagnostic tests to everyone but uh it is sort of an estimate trying to get at like n- not uh not minor things but 
like diagnosable depression right now. Yeah. Having like uh, a serious, yeah. Serious impact on your life. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, that's so interesting. Cause I bet the numbers <laughs> like really do vary like, um, in different regions. Yeah. Um, or by age is one thing I thought, right. like I, I bet I have to think middle schoolers and, and high schoolers, uh, have among, among the highest rates. Yeah. What a terrible time of life. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to say 10%. Yeah, pretty darn close, actually. 12.5. Oh, my gosh. Is this yeah. the first quiz that I've gotten right? I think that's got to be the closest <laughs> closest you've gotten so far. <laughs> yeah, 12.5. Uh, one in eight or so. Uh, so about a billion humans uh, currently alive with mental health conditions. But, uh, yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting because I do feel like when... I don't know, just certain times in my life, especially being younger, um, mm-hmm. it felt like almost everyone around me was like really seriously struggling, you know? And totally. I think, yeah, there were like different factors to that. Like most people were poor at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people were queer and maybe had like strained relationships with their families or more likely to have that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it really did. There was a time where I was like, is anybody okay? Like it, yeah, it really I, I felt like that was not the case. But. Yeah. I had that too. Just, I feel like, you know, the, the impression, I don't know if it comes from movies or what that like, uh, everyone who has a normal job is like secretly depressed about it. Right. You know, right. That like, every, you know, always, you know, death of a salesman sort of thing where it's <laughs> like, it, you know, you on the outside, he seems to be doing fine, but I'm sure secretly he's really sad about everything. And it's like, well, I mean, for 87% of people, maybe no, they're actually... it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've got, they've got, uh, I'm presumably most people have uh, non-mental health related struggles. But uh, in terms of depression, anxiety, that sort of thing, uh, yeah, one in eight or so. That's cool. Yeah, that's, it would be nice if it was lower, but it's, it's nice to know that like the, a large majority of people are doing all right in that sense. Totally. I guess it also makes me think, too, of that advice you mentioned earlier that, like, everyone would be doing better with therapy. Right. Even even the vast majority who don't have any diagnosed mental or, like, not even diagnosable mental health uh, things. Yeah, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah, maybe they're doing just fine. (laughs) And maybe, yeah, maybe going to therapy would make them feel worse, like that they did have problems that uh, they wouldn't have had if they hadn't gone it's possible yeah yeah i definitely you know the i think it's the ruminating right like if someone Mm. does not ruminate and goes to therapy and starts ruminating then then you've got a problem (laughs) yeah yeah totally (laughs) or i've just generally like pathologizing i think would be would be the risk is like uh there are lots of lots of i mean that's part of what makes it so hard to diagnose or like to choose diagnostic criteria right is that a lot of things that can mean clinical depression in one person can just be normal thoughts for someone else. Yeah. Uh, like just having a, a bad day or, yeah, or something totally. really sad happens. So then you're sad for a while. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I think like it's definitely important to remember that, yeah, it's the full spectrum of human emotions. It's normal to feel all of them at different points, right? It's really only if you get like yeah. stuck in one and you can't find your way out. That's, that's when it's a good time to find someone to help you out. But otherwise, totally. 
maybe just go for a walk. Yeah, <laughs> just 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 have a good day, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, this has been Hot Take Think Tank. Until next time. Bye.